0: Hello and welcome to episode four of the National Gallery of Ireland podcast series, The Island A Prospect. In this episode, I spoke to Dr Brendan Dunford, head of the Burren programme, and he talked me through a particular favourite walk of his in the Burren.
1: Burn is a kind of a it's been my home for the last 20 or so years and um, I'd say I've walked most of it at this stage um, through my work and through research that I did when I first came but there's one place I keep getting drawn back to um, mm-hmm. I walk there fairly often still um, and the reason I go back there is her is because it's a, it's a very beautiful place first of all it's a little bit off the beaten track so you usually have it to yourself and um, it's, I suppose, has a lot of uh, personal memories and history for me as well. So it's a little place called um, Kinalia or Eagle's Rock. Some mm. people call it Kielhilya and other people call it Karen. It's a little nature reserve uh, a few miles south of Kinvara, um yeah. in County Clare. Kinvara is in Galway, but uh, most of the burn is in County Clare, about 80% of it. So this is... This walk that I often go on um, is is just on the northern edge of the Clare Burn, um, and it's 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 Steve Caron or Kilhillya. Yeah. Um, so, I suppose starting off um, when you when you go to this place, you take the little by-roads and you head up onto the hills, and um, there's a small parking area uh, as as you come up, and you you can picture it quite well because in the distance is a, a kind of a, a cliff face, a very sheer face of rock. And that's yeah. where the place gets its name from, Eagle's Rock, uh, okay. apparently eagles nested there before. Uh, we don't know what type of eagles nested there. but. The sheet of rock, uh cliff there's face of no rock.
0: There's no eagles there anymore. There's
1: peregrine falcons there today. Okay. And you can hear them uh, if you get in there on a quiet evening. You can hear them screeching um, and, uh, and and wafting around as well. So there's, wow. uh, there's some per- nesting falcons there, yeah. which are beautiful. The fastest yes. bird in the world, the, 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 the fastest animal in the world, the peregrine falcon. Mm. So... It's a short little walk the one I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to go on. If you, if you went at pace you'd make it in 20 minutes but you know there's no way you're going to go at pace uh, yeah. across this walk. A because there's too much to see uh, and B because um, you'll trip <laughs> at the ground isn't that uh, level. There's a little old cart um, track which runs along um, through the rock and that's the one that I follow to get to this, this, this walk. And at the end of the walk which is at the foot of the cliff. There's a little oratory, a little stone church, which is built back probably six, seven, eight hundred years ago yeah. in memory of a man called St. Coleman, who lived as a hermit at the foot. So that's, that's our destination. Right. Um, so what is, what's the environment like? The environment is pure burn. Um, burn meaning, burn, Irish word meaning place of stone. So it's really your typical rocky burn environment. So as you enter the style, um, you're immediately on the rock, so yeah. this this various aggregations of limestone rock. Some of it's shattered, so it's rough and uh, noisy as you walk along. Some of this more flat intact pavement with these distinctive blocks of limestone called clints, yeah. and in between you these cracks. They're called grits, uh, where a lot of the, the 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 plants hide out in those little places. So you're immediately on to the rock once you enter the site, and yeah. as you go through the site. So this, just for anybody mm.
0: who's listening who doesn't know the burn, like to, when you say you're on the rock, like there's not
1: soil there, or there's not a lot of soil. There's there. soil in some parts. In soil. some parts of the yeah. So the, the burn is really um, limestone, limestone rock. Now limestone underlies maybe two thirds of the Irish landscape, but mostly it's, it's it's covered by a skin, a thick skin of soil. But in the barn, the skin has been torn away. So what you see is a skeleton of the landscape exposed mm. to the elements. So there's a lot of um, bare ground, this bare limestone rock. There's thin sections of soil, little, little uh, small sections, sometimes bigger areas. Some cases, such as at the end of our walk, there's drumlins, which are quite fertile mounds of earth deposited by glaciers. So there's a little bit of everything. It's not all rock, yeah. but it's not all Greenland either. Yeah. It's about as different as you can get from this notion of the f- the Emerald Isle or the Fork Shades of Green, it's very different from that. It's yeah. much more diverse and complex and nuanced uh, than that.
0: And if, if uh, two thirds of Ireland is on limestone, why is the burn different?
1: For a number of reasons. Um, a lot of it to do with glaciation, so a lot of the surface was torn away from the burn. Um, uh, 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 many, many millions of years ago and exposed to the elements. But other factors as well, human activity being one, um, humans would have removed a lot of the, 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 the cover, the tree cover, from the burn when they first mm. arrived. Without the trees, uh, when the roots rotted away, a lot of the soil was washed from the surface of the burn into these gripes, these cracks, and kind right. of disappeared. Just by rain. Yeah, by, by I think, a, period, a climatic downturn during the Iron Age, apparently a lot of the soil cover would have been washed away and the landscape was left exposed. Nobody knows for sure, but that's what we think. We know that the barn was always prehistorically covered with a thin layer of soil and woodland, but without the woodland, through farming, the soil uh, washed away uh, when when the climate changed. So actually, the presence of the bare rock is a testament to a sort of an environmental catastrophe going back a couple of thousand years. Yeah. but. Ironically enough, it's what tre- we treasure today, this, yeah. this bare limestone, this, this, this open rock.
0: Do we, ha- do we have evidence of, like, a population collapse there? Was
1: there a larger population that then... Yeah, well, we know from a lot of research. Anyway, Galway, for instance, have done a lot of research on, on um, both the, the vegetation cover on the landscape. So We've got pollen records showing how the landscape has changed over time. But also through the Archaeological Department, like Carlton Jones, we can trace the evolution of the communities. And we know that during the Bronze Age, for instance, the population was many, many t- more times uh, greater than it is today. There was a lot more farming activity in parts of the barn than there was today. Mm. Uh, most of the hills now are bereft of people. But back in the Late Bronze Age, we know that there was big settlements on some of those hillsides. Uh, and there was that's evidenced by the presence of stone walls and megalithic sites like wedge tombs and court tombs and things like that mm. so there's less people today um, but then there's more people in the towns and villages adjacent so population has changed yeah. uh, over time yeah. but I think when you when you set foot on the barn I'm always uh, reminded of the fact that we're walking across this limestone which is an ancient seabed right. so this limestone is effectively mm. the mud that formed at the bottom of a sea about 340 million years ago during the Carboniferous period. And if you look closely at the limestone, you can see it's full of fossils. It could be coral fossils or little shellfish, or it could be little bits of, tiny bits of plankton and stuff like that. And those are all visible in the rock, should you choose. And then also in the walls and the buildings of the barn, you can see that. But as you're walking across, you're literally walking across the marine life of this warm shallow sea from 340 million years ago, which is located around the equator. Which over time has moved north and north to where we are today um, in this temperate climate where, where Ireland sits. So it's it's moving over. It's moved over time. Yeah. But effectively, that mud hardened to become a rock. It hardened because of the pressure of the sea above it, and ultimately the land above it uh, to compress it to form this rock. So when you're walking in the barney looking for wildlife, you're actually standing on fossilised wildlife, mm-hmm. in effect. Yeah. And um, as you walk along, you can hear the sometimes a lovely tinkle. I don't know what the right word is, but the sound of the stone as as you walk along it. Um, With the smaller stones, there's a gentle tinkle as you walk along. With the bigger stones, sometimes a little bit looser, you can get a bigger clunk. Oh, really? Like the... The stones that are stuck in the ground, but they'll move? Some of them are more f- fragmented and broken. Yeah. Some of them are larger, more intact, but there's a little bit of give in them so you can feel them clunking uh, yeah. around a little bit, like rock music, is what we call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but that limestone is incredibly diverse, both in terms of its form and its structure. And then uh, when you have a shower of rain, it transforms completely. Um, it's, it's, you know, moves from this kind of grey uh, when I say grey is forty or fifty shades of grey, whatever you like, because the limestone is covered with lichens, and they all have different, slightly different colours and patterns on them. Yeah. So, as you look closely, you see greyness, but as you look more closely, um, there's all these patterns on the rock. And then, when you get a shower of rain, you can see the little drops of water making their imprint on the rock, and gradually the rock shifting from that grey to kind of a charcoal dark, charcoal black. And it's beautiful to watch. And then, when the sun comes out. Uh, the reverse happens. It's kind of that it changes from that dark charcoal grey to this light, bright grey again. So it's changing all the time, yeah. depending on the day that you have. Um, it changes all the time. But yeah. when you start that walk, uh, you're you're walking through that beautiful sort of um, a limestone uh, habitat, that limestone terrain, which gives the burn its name, obviously.
0: Yeah, so, so continuing on this walk, this, mm-hmm. this 20 minute walk, so you, you're, you're walking um, across
1: like a field of, of limestone or, something mm-hmm. like that, or a path of limestone. Yeah, an old cart path through the fields because um, the path was used by farmers years ago and it's a very narrow path uh, to bring hay from the foot of the, 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 um, the cliff back to the road. So it's a handy enough path to walk along. But I suppose as you go along there, um, you're conscious also of the, the emergence of the flora, depending on what time of the year you're there. Um, but if you go there between May and, say, October, you're going to see little pinpricks of colour emerging, um, either on the pavement, between, in the little cracks, little uh, pockets uh, between the rocks and the little cracks between the rocks, or else in the patches of grassland. So it's not the bright kind of green pastures that we're used to, but there's little little uh, outcrops of vegetation which are full of of different plants Uh, lots and lots of different plants now where you get soil in the barn it tends to be very thin maybe a couple of inches thick Um, and uh, it's also a land which suffers or benefits if you like from a lot of rainfall so maybe two meters of rainfall a year in that spot you'd be getting so that thin skin of soil which is you know Uh, here and there on the limestone, it's flushed through by mildly acidic rainwater so there's very little nutrients left. Mm. So it's a very tough place for plants to grow and that means that your big, strong plants, your thistles and your nettles and your strong grasses, they can't really survive in a place like that. Instead, all these small, compact, tough little plants from all parts of the world can survive in a place like this because Mm -hmm. they're tough, they're built for stress. So they can survive being inundated with rainfall, growing in a kind of very thin soil with low nutrients. And they can survive summer drought as well, these little plants. They're really tough and hardy. And because it's so compact, you can fit a lot of them uh, in, in one area. When I first came to the barn, um I didn't know much about plants. In fact, I knew little or nothing about them. But it was my, part of my research was to um, set down a square metre and count and identify every plant within the square metre. I spent about three years doing that um, on my knees with a, what's called a square meter quadrat, yeah, writing down the names of all the plants. On no, average... No, I was
0: just one square meter for three years,
1: was it? No, no, I kept moving the square meter. Okay, I would have gone good, then, then. even more mad than I am if I, if I had to do that. But on average, you'd come up with maybe 30, 32 plants per square meter. Okay. Imagine that. That yeah. number of plants. On average, sometimes you're getting 48, 50. Of different... Of different, different species. species. Not just different versions of the same plant, but actually different species. So that shows you how diverse, mm. because these plants are small and compact and often quite rare, but they'll all find a little home for themselves in the burn and prosper quite well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, second, the second reason why we get, the other reason besides the geography and the climate that we get so many of these beautiful little plants is because of the farming, um, because of the grazing system in the burn. The cattle graze off, all the dead grasses. When the flowers go asleep in wintertime, the cattle go onto the land and they harvest off all the dead plant material. Uh, and then the cattle are taken off in spring. And then these little plants can pop out again. These little flowers can pop out because they've got enough light. Uh, right, can enough light. N- there aren't other plants blo- blocking the light. No, all the dead plants have been removed by the cattle, ideally. So you get this lovely symbiosis between the farming and the flora uh, of the burn. Mm. So depending on what time of the year you go there, um, you see different flowers. So around May, you see the first, April, May, you see the first plant, which is a very iconic plant called the Spring gentian. It's from the Alps, you normally find in Alpine regions. And it's shaped like a little propeller. Um, It's got five petals and they're the deepest, most beautiful blue that you can ever imagine. Just incredible, incredible blue. And then the throat of the plant in the center of the petals is white. It's lovely, pure white. So the shape of this plant and the colour of it is really beautiful, and it's quite an iconic plant in the burn. You see it on a lot of the local businesses. They'll call themselves the Gentian House or the will Gentian Villa, or they'll have a the symbol of the gentian on the the burn centre in Kilfenora, for instance. So it's an iconic little plant. Mm. But then, uh, if you go there on May, you see another one of the famous plants, because you see carpets growing on the rock, just along the surface of the rock. This plant. Runs, around, runs over the rock in a carpet of cream coloured flowers with these beautiful yellow centres and that's called uh, the Mountain avens, or Dryas Octopetala and that plant is from the Arctic, from all sorts of places and it forms um, uh, as I said this wonderful carpet of, of colour yeah. right across the barn in, in, in May around the month of May and if you look very closely around that same month you'll find the spikes thinner than my finger uh, of a little orchid, a uh, palish-green-coloured orchid, one of the first ones to emerge every year. Uh, and that's called the Denslard Orchid, and that comes from the Mediterranean. Um, uh, so you've got Arctic, Alpine, and Mediterranean, all growing around the same time, April yeah. and May, all in the same little field in the barn, yeah. uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about it.
0: And, when, uh, and how do they come to be there? Are they naturally, or were they introduced by humans, or do we know?
1: Well, it's a really interesting, um, I suppose, contemporary story. But a, nobody knows, (laughs) and b, um, the suspicion is it's it's from past climate change. So during very cold periods, the glaciers would have pushed down from the north, Mm. carrying seeds such as the mountain lavens with it, and even the Arctic plants could have survived at a time like that. But when those glaciers retreated, somehow those plants managed to adapt local environment. The thing about the Burns is it's very bright, it's quite glary so it mimics in some ways um, a more arctic um, um, climate but the temperature is totally different. We're at sea level in the Burns so it really shouldn't be there but we think it came with the glaciers and adapted. During warmer periods then the Mediterranean flora moved up and some of those Mediterranean flora made it to Ireland uh, and some of them like the Maidenhair fern and that little dense orchid they managed to managed to make a home for themselves and when the climate started to cool down again they were able to stick it out to tolerate it so that's as much as we can conjecture um, but it's one of the many kind of mysteries paradoxes of the world you will get plants from very cold regions growing beside plants from very warm regions it's it's, yeah. it's unusual yeah and i love the fact that there's no full explanation for it we think we know why but we don't know for sure <laughs> you know uh, nice,
0: yeah, so there's a mystery there in the yeah, there's a mystery there
1: yeah mm. yeah there's a mystery there in the barn um but then as you go across the year you'll find different plants that right around um uh, mid like late may june you see this beautiful plant called the bloody crane's bill it's, it's a draining plant to me it's one of the iconic plants also of the barn along with the mountain avens and the spring gentian a beautiful purple flower, um, with these gorgeous anthers, kind of bluish coloured anthers. It's a fantastic plant. Um, they call it a bloody cranes bill because when all the petals fall off, it's like a, a beak, a bird's beak, dipped in blood. The tip of it is, 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 is bright red. Mm. They call it a bloody cranes bill. And later on in the year, you'll get wild thyme. So as you walk across, you can get the smell of the wild thyme as you crush it underneath your feet. It's, it's, it's permeating the air. It's a beautiful flower. Um, you'll also get uh, lots of orchids. So we have In that little walk, as I mentioned, the dense-flowered orchid, you'll have lots of early purple orchids, which appear in April and May. And then in kind of like June, June, June-July, you'll find some of the most remarkable orchids, such as the bee orchid and the fly orchid and the butterfly orchid. And those tiny plants, again, they're not much bigger than my finger, and their flower heads are smaller than my fingernail, have evolved to take the shape of an insect. So the flowers look just like a little insect to be a fly or a bee or a little um, uh, butterfly. And uh, that's, that's an extraordinary example of, um, of natural evolution where the plant has modified itself to attract pollinators to come uh, and collect pollen from it and to transfer the pollen to another plant elsewhere. Mm. So you have these wonderful, minute little mysteries of nature yeah. scattered across the landscape. Um, and each
0: of out. those plants, then are are lying dormant for most of the year? Are they? Because they're all coming yeah. out at different times. So they're all kind of sharing this space in a way. In like they found like a cycle where they can all
1: have their time in the sun. Well, they all party on together for the for the summer for sure. Okay. So come. Um, Like you'll have woodland plants which come out a little bit earlier, maybe in March because they need the light before the leaves fill in, they need to have access to the light. But out from the barn where there's lots of light, they start flowering really um, kick in around May and they flower right through fully until maybe August and then there's lingering examples of different plants right through um, until maybe October. Then there's a few, um, like a lovely little geranium called the herb robert which you find flowering all year round Um, there as well. So yeah, you get you get a lovely um, diversity of colour mm. throughout the year sometimes some colours are stronger than, than others, you get a wonderful abundance of certain plants and then other plants you really have to search for um, so there's there's something for everybody in the burn. but just a word of warning for those who come on the walk if they ever find their way here is that you don't expect anything big and brash and bold, the burn is, is it's not the land of the obvious, you actually have to seek it out, you have to Get down on your hands and knees and take some time and and poke around a little bit and Mm. be aware it just takes time to get into the swing of the place and to see some of these tiny flowers Yeah, you know and that's part of the beauty of it it doesn't come easy you have to you have to give it time and the nice thing about that is then every time you go back it gives you something more it gives you a little bit more it's not an obvious landscape but it's a gradually revealing and rewarding uh, landscape I think
0: yeah you know so at the end of, of the walk is, what was the St. Colman?
1: I'm it? only starting the walk yet. Oh, we're only
0: starting <laughs> the walk. Excuse me. I, I didn't know how far down the walk the we The thing were. about the burn that
1: I have to warn you about yeah. is that uh, if you're half enthusiastic like me or if you ever should accompany me in the walk, you want to be careful because we probably move about 10 meters in an yeah. hour. <laughs> there's an enormous amount to see Crazy. in a tiny space. But I just wanted to convey the, the sense that as, for every step you take in the burn, there's something different to yeah. see. And that's really unique yeah. uh, with the burn that there's geological features there's ecological features and then there's the archaeology which we'll kind of encounter as we go along but before we leave the flora and, 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 the, and, and, and uh, the, the geology just the other thing to look out for is on the surface of the rock there's these extraordinary little patterns um, formed by water so when you think about it rainwater is a mild acid and limestone is very soluble so where the rainwater can find the point of contact or point of weakness it eats away to limestone mm. to form a lot of these linear cracks, these vertical fissures called grikes, but also on the surface of the rock, they form little pockets, they etch out little pockets like little flower pots on the surface of the rock. Uh, and gradually over time, the, the, in combination with rainwater and some of the lichens, they start to etch out little holes in the rock. Some of those holes are bare. Some of them get inhabited by a little plant called nostoc, which is an algae. And then what you'll find is the hares of which are many and goats of which are many as they cross the landscape, they drop their little uh, dung out the back and some of it rolls into this little pocket in the rock, bringing fertilizers with it. So you've got a little uh, pocket uh, on the rock with some bare uh, soil developing from this algae called nostoc, then the fertilizer through the growth droppings and then seeds pop in. And over the years, you can actually see a bare piece of rock. Now, this is over many years, developing a little flora. So all across the barn, you see little pockets on the rock with various stages of, of, of um, uh, little ecological communities developing on it. It's, ex- it's extraordinary. Mm. We think the rock doesn't change, but it's changing all the time. Mm. And then we also see where the water runs from the surface of the rock into the grike, there's all these runnels, these lovely um, floating organic features where the, where the water moves from the surface to The to the to the grike and etches out uh little patterns and limestone limestone as it does so. So, every rock, every little piece of rock, every square meter of rock is completely different from every other square meter in the burn. It's all different, it's all diverse. It's the patterns are extraordinary, yeah. Um, and then as I said, combine that with the changing, the shifting weather, and, and you see something, see something um different every day, yeah. But, anyhow, if you walk. Uh, without looking down, uh, and without tripping over, for about 15 minutes, you'll so come you walk to. Without
0: looking down, you've missed it. You're probably
1: gonna, yeah. But if you do that, you'll make it to the first stop, which is about 15 minutes and 10 minutes maybe. And it's a wall. It's a beautiful limestone wall. Um, so you're walking along a fairly flat surface, and suddenly the limestone becomes vertical. And it's where people, farmers, many years ago, built a wall. So, there's a gate, so you don't have to climb the wall. Um, but to my mind, it's one of the best built walls in the barn. Now, it's probably not more than 200 years old, mm. but it's the perfect example of your typical single stone wall in the barn because just one stone wide, the stones are stood on their edge and they neatly fit into each other up to the height of about four, four and a half feet so it's a very effective barrier for cattle but it's dead straight the whole way along and it runs for maybe about a kilometer this wall it's a pure work of art um i saw some of sean scully's photographs from Aaron on the walls uh, beautiful uh, at, at the exhibition in the national when gallery say, when you
0: say it's single stone like that's
1: one stone for the height or no, it's just one stone, wide. one stone wide so all these stones have to be balanced on each other there's no it's not a double wall so yeah. it's a real work of art to build a wall that will stand for hundreds of years at yeah. uh, uh, a, a considerable height, but it's only one stone wide. It's only maybe 10 inches wide, 12 inches wide. Mm. And lots of gaps in it. Uh, and that's quite typical in the burn because it's very windy. So by leaving gaps, the wind can blow through the wall without blowing it down. Yeah. So to my mind, these are extraordinary works of art. They're functional art, if you like, but to me, they're art. They're, 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 mm. they're just so beautiful. And each mm. one is distinctive. But this one is a particularly nice one. And a tip, a survival tip, if it starts blowing and, and, and raining, just set yourself beside that wall. Sit about a foot out from the wall because otherwise you'll get the draft and a bit of rain coming through. But if you sit about a foot out from the wall, you'll miss most of the weather. Yeah. So those walls are very functional for animals and for people as well if you need a bit of shelter. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's really our first obvious sign of people inhabiting the landscape of, of, of the barn, that wall. But as you go through, the wall via a stile or a gate uh, there's a little gate there as well just bear off to the left um, about 200 meters off to the left there's a little spring uh, and water now is a really scarce commodity in the barn. but about 200 meters to the left there's a little spring and that spring emerges it's a, a, little, 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 um, uh, a little spring source it emerges and it runs for maybe 10 20 feet no maybe about five meters yeah, about 20 feet, and then it disappears again through a swallow hole. And that's quite typical in the burn that the water will emerge and then disappear as soon as it finds a line of weakness. It'll shoot underground into these cave systems and emerge out in Galway Bay up near Kinvara, Um the next time you'll see yeah. it. But that's a beautiful um, little site right there because just beside that little water source is what we call a fullock Now, fullock are most wonderful uh, constructions uh, but they're, you, you, you just don't you, it's very difficult to spot them on the landscape because all you find is a grassed over horseshoe shaped mound mm-hmm. in the landscape so you blink and you miss it but the way to find this is look for water because these things were always built beside a spring fear means cooking place of the wild or cooking place of the deer and it's where people often I guess um, who, who were quite mobile back in those days gathered at certain points of the year and um, they, um, they dug a pit in the ground right beside the spring and so dug a pit into the ground maybe a couple of feet by uh, three or four feet deep and lined it with wood or with rock and then filled the pit with water then they lit a fire because the burnwood had a lot of woodland back then and burnt blocks of limestone on that fire then they would have transferred the blocks of the limestone into the pit of water, and the limestone would have lost its heat to the water and started to crack. So at that point they took out the limestone and discarded it where we find, find the mound today. So by burning rock, dropping in the water, the water got hot, the limestone got cold, threw out the blackened, burnt limestone, and gradually, over time, the mound got bigger and the water got hotter to the point where they are actually able to get an animal, usually a small calf or a deer or a goat, skin it, wrap it in herbs for flavouring, and drop it into the water, all the while adding the stone to cook it. So these were simple cooking places from the Bronze Age, three and a half thousand years ago. Mm. And apparently after cooking, they were also used for bathing, that you could actually, um, you know, eat hot water. Okay, it smelt of animal grease, but yeah. that, that was the deodorant of the time, like I always say, and made just smell very attractive. And today it's just a burnt mound. But yeah. if you can kind of imagine the amount of activity and the fun and... Uh, celebration that was had at that site mm. three and a half thousand years ago and what even today is a remote location mm. it's pretty amazing i mean we're coming into barbecue weather now so yeah. you, you reckon people should give this a go i think if you want to give it a go it, it does work <laughs> yeah. yeah because a few miles have you seen up it toward, actually? a few miles up the road it's been yeah they've they've they've, they've done re- recreations on on them and, and one up in Karen by a group from Cork back in the 80s they they uh, excavated the Fullock Fia and they found some very interesting uh, artefacts as well as they have another Fullock across Ireland and they cooked the sheep in the Follock Fia I'm not mm-hmm. sure if they had a the bath afterwards or not but mm-hmm. <laughs> they could have but you know today's kitchen appliances can't do that much they're not that multifunctional are they that you can cook in them and bathe in them no, you know? I've never so had a decent bath in a <laughs> bath done I probably wouldn't advise you try it either yeah. but that's again part of the hidden human heritage mm-hmm. um, of the burn um, yeah, as I said, it's a little bit off the track, but it's worth a little journey over there just to see that. Would those character- full of would you see them all around Ireland? Or are they particular to the Burren They would have been all over Ireland, yeah. but because of changes in land use, land reclamation and so on, they've been wiped away cause right. it's quite difficult to, to spot them. But the burn would be a, a stronghold for them. I've often met farmers who said they were clearing a field, this is back years ago, and suddenly the ground turned black. And that's really because it's a they, they, they drove over or they cleared away a full of mm. that blackened the blackened rock is what, what's a giveaway sign for it so there's lots of them all over Ireland but the barn would be a real stronghold yeah. given the nature of the landscape and of the farming and the landscape today um, so then if we get back onto our path yeah. um, we walk along some more lovely limestone uh, and we're heading for the cliff and over to our right, if you lo- if you look out, there's a lovely round boulder, uh, uh, and everything in the burn is quite angular and quite you know um, straight lines. But uh, uh, now and again, you'll find these big round boulders scattered in the landscape, and these are another lovely feature, a geological feature of the burn, because what they are is they're the calling cards of the glaciers from about twenty thousand years ago. Because back then, our last glaciation was twenty-five 000 to fifteen thousand years ago. Glaciers would have plucked out big blocks of limestone northeast of the burn and dragged them along the base of the glaciers. Uh, um, and through abrasion, the edges, the hard edges would have been knocked off. Mm. So by the time the glaciation ended and the glaciers melted and they dropped off these rocks, they'd become rounded in the form of these erratics. So there's a beautiful erratic, if you just look to your right as you're walking toward the cliff face, uh, there's a beautiful example of that glacial erratic sitting on an area of really beautiful climps and cracks, these deep cracks. So it's totally unique mm. to see these cracks. And at the end, i sitting on the surface of the rock. Is this big round boulder, yeah. which has been dropped um, by glaciation. So at a time of climate change, it's really interesting to remember, to be reminded of the fact that you know we've we've been we've suffered periods of climate uh, change before. And this one's different, obviously, and it's way more significant, I think. Uh, but you know the burn is a place where you can see the effects of glaciation in the past as well, mm. and the legacy of that. But then getting back onto my path again, yep. bring me back, bring me back. Yeah, um, you're starting to walk through some hazel scrub, um, uh, which which is a, a, a prominent feature of the burn, um, and increasingly so because um, just before we get onto a lovely green field, uh, before we leave the rock and emerge onto a green field. Um, The story of farming in the burn is a really interesting one because this rock that we walk across is actually farmland and nobody can understand this but when I came here as a student first 20 years ago um, I was looking at the impact of farming on the burn. and the first question anybody asked me when they saw me on my hands and knees looking into flowers how can you farm here it's a rock for goodness sake Uh, and there's a famous saying about the burn: that there's not water enough to drown a man wood enough to hang one nor earth enough to bury them. But what I always say is, if you read to the end of that quote, what he goes on to say is that yet the cattle are very fat because between the limestone rocks lies tufts of grass which are very sweet and nourishing. So that famous quote from one of Cromwell's soldiers, which is describing how barren and bereft the landscape looked, wasn't actually. It was saying how fertile, Mm. uh, surprisingly fertile, in spite of its appearance, that the landscape was. And the the burn has the oldest built structure, uh, by farmers in Ireland, called Palmebron Portal Dolmen, built 5,800 years ago, about 10 miles west of where we're walking. It's got um, several hundred ring forts, which were the cattle enclosures of the early Christian period, built around six to 900 AD. We've got about 80 megalithic tombs, which were built by farming communities. We've got stone walls, some of which are as old as 4,500 years, as old as the walls and the cage of fields, but they're on the surface, they're like a cobweb a fragmented cobweb on the surface of the landscape, mm. these megalithic, uh, these neolithic wall systems that we have in the barn. So it's been farmed for 6,000 years. And the first farmers that came came to a wooded landscape. So it was completely covered with wood. We know this from pollen records. But farmers, through burning and through cutting, would have cleared away the woodland to make space for pasturing cattle. And they found that this is a good place for animals because the woodland was light and easy to clear there was year-round grazing because it was quite warm and there's a good mixture of species I guess and good water to drink as well. So over time from pollen records we can see through the Bronze Age that farming activity is growing and the number of tree species are declining and that's always been the case in the burn. So for instance in the Iron Age which followed uh, the human population collapsed. We don't know why but it did and the, the trees and bushes and woodland came right back again. Early Christian period population grew Uh, Woodland cover decreased. Famine times, we were the highest possible population in the barn. It was completely free of any woodland, flora, any scrub, nothing. There was nothing to burn in the barn. There was a fuel famine. But today, farming, and we can talk about this later, but um, farming is withdrawing from these places. You just can't farm these places efficiently. And it's very hard to attract young farmers to farm these places. So what's happening is the natural woodland cover is coming back again. So as we walk through the scrub, it's a reflection on the fact that the amount of farming taking place in this area is reducing and reducing. The natural cover is coming back again. And it's a beautiful habitat because as we go further along, we can see how it matures into gorgeous hazel and ash woodland. But what is happening, unfortunately, as well, is that we're losing a lot of the open grassland where we find our gentians and our orchids. So it's a really interesting insight into the interplay between people and uh, landscape the vegetation um, but it's one of the challenges that we face today that farming in these areas is declining and we're losing a lot of our biodiversity mm. and our cultural heritage as a result so be in mind of that as you, as you as you walk through the little hazel grove um, before we come to the green field
0: yeah well let's well let's talk about that that farming aspect because that that is your role isn't it is not it? that yeah, yeah
1: yeah so yeah that's that's why i came to the burn, uh, as i said 20 years ago and unfortunately for the people of the burn, I never left. <laughs> they haven't got rid of me yet, and now it's my home. But... So at the time we recognised the fact that, you know, uh, there's, there's a dynamic relationship always between people and the burn. But actually people are critical to the biodiversity and the cultural landscape of the burn. So we look at the burn. it's not a natural landscape. It's, it's, it's a cultural landscape. It would have been wooded if people weren't here, so clearly. Uh, the, the landscape we see today is cultural because the trees. Farmers built all the structures I described before. The tombs, the monuments, the ring forts, the tower houses. Those were all built by farm families. So the cultural legacy, which is, has placed uh, the burn on Ireland's 10th of the World Heritage Site list, has all been built by farmers. Mm. The walls, equally so. But the biodiversity, which is what I was studying, depends on farming activity. So there's a fascinating tradition in the burn called winter grazing. So, the problem for farmers in the barn is that obviously you can't plough it, it's too rocky, so you can only graze it. But the problem with grazing is in summertime, typically there's very little water. There's low rainfall, and whatever rain falls goes through the cracks, cracks, into the, the gripes, and out to sea. So, there's very little water. Uh, and it's also very hot uh, on the limestone for cattle uh, because of the, the, the glare, mm. and the vegetation is quite coarse at that time of the year without water. So, farmers adapted their farming patterns uh, to form a tradition called winterage or winter grazing. Doing the opposite to what farmers all over the world did. Farmers all over the world put their cattle onto the hills in summertime when it's nice and warm and dry. Farmers in the barn put cattle onto the hills in wintertime, mm. which is, it sounds bizarre, but actually works because in wintertime there's lots of rainwater and the cattle have plenty of streams, springs, little pockets of water on the surface of the rock, rich in calcium, so very healthy. They've got a standing crop of hay, which you don't need to cut because of these herbs, they stay upright and standing all year round. So the cattle have what's called foggage. It's like a standing crop of hay and every mouthful, you have a different different species. Yeah. And then the limestone is like a giant underfloor heating system because it absorbs the summer heat and releases in wintertime. So it's actually really, uh, the heaps, land of the dry lie. Yeah, the heat it. Or? Well, there's 700 metres of limestone. The limestone is great at retaining heat and then as the Temperature cools down in winter it gradually gradually releases that heat so I always say jokingly that it's like a five star hotel for cattle they have under heating they have the best menu of herb species you can get in Ireland and they have this lovely rich cocktail of calcium water calcium rich water so animals do quite well there over winter time but what I found was that um, uh, if you took away that tradition of winter grazing what happens is one or two grasses and herbs become very dominant and they block out the light from the other plants. So like burn grass, Cislaria, and melinia, um, another type of grass, they just form a thatch without grazing. They form a thatch through which the small herbs can't penetrate. The only plants that come through are mosses and also scrub, hazel and blackthorn and uh, bramble and things like that. So you stop farming these areas, 10 years later, it becomes scrubbed over. So um, the opposite, uh, if, if, if you had farming all year round, if you didn't have the traditional winter grazing, Cattle would soon chew off all the nice flowering plants and you wouldn't get the seed sources and you'd lose your biodiversity. So what I was able to do over three years on my knees is prove uh, what farmers already knew is that flowers are there because of the system of winter grazing that we have. Um, so uh, what I've found from that is that looking at farmers, the stats then is that we were losing farmers um, very quickly in the barn. I think when I did my PhD back in 2000, we'd lost something like 50% of the farm labourers that we had in, in, in 1970. So people available labour on the farms had reduced by about 50%, I think, between 1970 and 2000. And it's continuing to decline today. So the same numbers of farmers aren't there. The same numbers of cattle aren't where they used to be on the hills. And what's happening? The landscape is responding. It's starting to fill in with scrub again and fill in with grasses. And we're starting to lose the biodiversity and some of the cultural heritage suffering as well. So we... Then set up a lovely little programme um, called the Burn Programme, very obvious. Uh, and it's fantastically innovative, I'm proud to say, and it's not down to me, it's down to the farmers and my colleagues, uh, like Sharon Parr. We developed a system where we pay farmers for biodiversity. Now, th- that's very um, forward-thinking, but what we say to farmers is, look, you're a burn farmer, you produce great cattle, and when you bring your cattle to the mark, market or mart, you get paid for the quality of your animals. What we're saying to you is that by farming in a certain way, by grazing the barn really well in wintertime with plenty of cattle, you're producing biodiversity. And the better biodiversity you produce, the more money we're going to pay you. So we developed a scoring system, which we've run now for eight years across about 300 farms at the moment, where we score every field in the barn depending on its environmental health. How good the grazing is for biodiversity, how clean the water supply is. Is the soil being looked after properly? Is there a lot of problem species? We give it a score to 10. The higher the score, the more money you get. Mm. So um, it's a totally new way of looking at the use of the land because I believe that farming is about much more than food production. It's about providing um, biodiversity. It's about providing us with good clean water, good healthy soils. It can be about preventing fires from occurring, as is the case on the continent. It can be a case of um, sequestering carbon. So farming, the new type of farming I think we're going to need in Ireland is going to be about a whole different bunch of ecosystem services, as well as food production. We still need farmers to produce food. Yeah. But we as a society, I think, and the Baron has shown that this can work, we need to support farmers to produce ecosystem services that are really badly needed by society at the moment. Yeah. So we've run that programme now for about, since 2000, with support from the uh, Department of Agriculture and the European Commission and the National Parks and Milo Service. And we can show every year using our data that we're actually enhancing the condition of the barn uh, year on year over about 22,000 hectares, about 50,000 acres of land of the best habitat that we have in Ireland. And the farmers are doing it. They're removing scrub, which is encroaching onto these grasslands. They're improving water facilities. They're repairing walls so you can graze the land again. They're putting the animals back and they're doing a great job. It just goes to show that we provide the right financial incentive Mm. and technical support. We give them really good technology. This is not going backwards, this is going forwards that they can actually deliver for the environment. And I think that's a message that relates not just to the burn farmers, but to the farmers all across Ireland. Mm. Uh, If we want to address some of the biodiversity and climate emergency uh, situations that we have at the moment, I think farmers can play a huge role uh, in, 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 in the solution to those. Uh, challenges, if there is a solution. So would
0: you like to see like,
1: a sim- similar programmes throughout Ireland? Well, actually, now that say that, we've, there's, uh, through the Department of Agriculture and the European Commission, uh, there's a series of European Innovation Partnerships. So this is where local farmers and scientists and public uh, policy makers come together around the table, and they drop a plan for their landscape. So the reeks, the McGillicuddy reeks, mm-hmm. Connemara, um, we have the Blackstairs Mountains, we have Wicklow Mountains, uh, Innishoen. These places have come up with their own little program to protect their own area through farming. So all of these landscapes shaping Ireland, Ireland's been shaped by farming, and the western seaboard and the uplands continues to be shaped by and dependent upon farming activity. So what these little EIPs, as they're called, are trying to do across Ireland is, is not copying the burn, but using principles from the burn that the farmer... The farmer is the one who can deliver change with mm. appropriate financial incentives and technical support and, and trust um at a local level that um they can actually look after these wonderful places for society into the future so it's it's great Ireland's uh, a european leader in that regard through these eips so i think uh we're doing a lot but we need to do an awful lot more given the situation that we're in mm. did you was it easy to get the farmers on board uh, it, it depends farmers are like um, all sectors of society some are total innovators and totally I, I always put it down about 20% of them are totally 100% on board there's about 60-70% or 70% who are kind of okay yeah we'll go along with that that sounds good it's not threatening and you know then there's 10% who are just not interested but the beautiful thing about this with our program is that um it's the guys who do most work and make most effort get the money and the guys who aren't bothered that's fine yeah. they're producing something as well um, they're yeah. producing a different outcome but what, what else is lovely about this project is that I think nature loves diversity of approaches of management uh, traditional schemes are all about calendar dates you do such a thing on such a date and such a thing on such a date with us every farmer does something different every day and that's what nature loves and that's what I love about keeping the burn kind of complex that's what we want we want it managed in different ways by different people those that aren't interested in the programme they'll produce something those that are really engaged they just produce amazing outcomes for us as well so they're all different mm-hmm. but I'd, I have to say I work with farmers for 20 years and I, f- I find them great to work with You yeah. know, they're good honest people and if supported properly and, and if, if you trust them and if you, if you reward them when they do the right thing I think uh, it, it, it's, it's really positive they're good people to work with Great. Right. Mm. So, uh, continuing on our walk, yes. where have we got to now? So we've got a um, first bit of Greenland, and as you walk across the barn, you think, Jesus, it's all rock, where's this field coming from? But there's mm. two lovely green fields. They're kind of like drumlins. They're, they're basically glacial deposits, but these ones are unusual because they're in a nature reserve, which is public land. Now, I should say from the start, that 95% of the barn is privately owned farmland, so don't feel free to wander anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, be aware of the fact that there's cattle out there there's farmers actively working but there is a national park there's a nature reserve where we're walking right now and there's lots of green roads where people can can walk to their heart's content so we will serve it by walks but um, here in this this Drumlin because it's owned by the state it's not improved or fertilised and this is very productive land so the fact that it hasn't been improved it's quite natural and it's quite rare to have it like that so you'll find lots of orchids especially these uh, Dactylorhiza, which are common spotted orchids, you'll find lots of them in this field, on this lovely fertile field. So the path, there's a little chip path here. You can follow the path up and over the first mound, and then through a little gap um, into the second field, which is at the foot of the cliff. And as you walk along the path, by the way, um, there's a lovely boulder and erratic to your right-hand side, um, if you listen to this as you walk, and. Almost growing through it, out from the rock, is a beautiful hawthorn tree, a white thorn tree, um, which is a sacred tree in Ireland. Now, it's not growing outward, but it looks like it is. It's growing directly behind it. Yeah. It's like an entrance to the, to the sacred space that we're about to enter. And if you look at that tree, there's the branch, the tree and the rock are so intimate that the branch from the hawthorn goes right over the rock. And because of the wind pushing the branch over and back, if you lift up the branch and feel it underneath, it's so smooth from rubbing off the rock all the time and the rock is so smooth from rubbing off the branch all the time it's like the two of them are in this uh, constant state of um friction yeah but it's a lovely beautiful smooth feeling and else, always that, to me that's a little sacred rock and it's like a, an entrance to the sanctuary of the of the, of, the of, of cronin so we pass that by we walk across another green field and then we enter finally the woodland there 's very little woodland today in the burn, but what we have here in Schlieve Kar uh, in Keehilya is some of the oldest woodland in the burn, and it is beautiful it 's stunning. so the cliff is up right behind you, You're getting very close to the cliff now, uh, but between the cliff and the green field is some of the most mature woodland that you 'll find in the burn so what you 'll find is hazel the scrub it can get quite high, you can get maybe um, six meters tall, i guess or maybe four meters tall. But then after a point, ash starts to grow through and forms the kind of crowning species, the to, 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 to top species. So all within this woodland, well, from outside you can see some of the ash emerging through the hazel, but usually it's a, it's a hazel-covered woodland, like a, like a river running at the foot of the, of the cliff. But as you go into it, you're entering a land of green because it's covered with mosses, with lichens, with little liverworts, um, it's like an Irish rainforest for all the world. It's the most beautiful uh, environment. And should you go there in around, um, I suppose, around the time of the cuckoo, which would be late April, May, it's full of wild garlic. So these beautiful white flowering wild garlic uh, are in bloom around then and sometimes into May as well. And you can get the smell of it as you walk along. It's a fantastic smell. And as you emerge, you climb through a little rough, rocky section and there's a gable end of an oratory right there uh, with one side wall. I don't, don't touch it because it's quite delicate but it's an old uh, oratory in honour of a man called St. Coleman and it's beautiful it's very fragile but it's been standing like that for over 100 years now and the church itself we think the oratory was built probably around seven or 800 years ago based on the style of it and that's where um, a famous man, a saint called Coleman lived back in the 5th century and he's our kind of destination but as you, as you go up to the oratory just turn around and face back the way you came so you've got the gable end of the church at your back and the cliff at your back as well and you're looking out uh, at the way you came now there's a lot of bushes and trees in the way but um, that's the view that Coleman would have had when he lived there as a hermit and just down to your left is a little stream again a short stream with a little holy well and apparently that holy well is used as a cure against depression once upon a time that if you suffered from the nerves as they call it you'd spend the night up there or do some cure with it that's down to your left but then back up to your right, it's quite a quite a steep climb, but very short climb. Is a little cave, uh, and that's apparently where Coleman uh, slept. That's that, that's where he had his little uh, sleeping quarters in that cave. You can you can crawl in there today. But going back down to the church, there's a little lecht or an outer altar which has been assembled just in front of the church. Um, so you're you're standing at the lecht, well down to your left gable of the church at your back and a uh, cave up to your top right. And you're reminded of the story of, of Coleman, which has actually been written in history, that he was a holy man who lived um, in, 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 uh, in the vicinity of, 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 of the burn back in the 5th century AD. And um, back, back then, the tradition was to, uh, if you're a holy man, you went to live as a hermit. So Coleman was a servant um, because everyone had, every saint had a servant back then. Mm-hmm. Went to live in this place called Kilhillia, Went to live with a fly, um, a mouse, and a cockerel. The fly would walk along the lines of the missile to help him read. The mouse would nibble his ear if he fell asleep during prayer, and the cockerel would crow to wake him up in the morning so he could study uh, study his, his Bible from dawn to dusk. But there's a very famous story about Coleman um, that. One Easter Sunday, he'd been fasting for five years with his servant. He'd been up there for five years with his servant, but he'd been fasting for Lent. It was Easter Sunday and uh, the servant had enough at this stage. And he said, Master, do you not remember the times in the monastery when we had a big feast to celebrate the resurrection today? And Coleman felt sorry for his servant, so he said a prayer. And as soon as he said the prayer, the king who lived in Kinvara, King Guara, who was a very kind and hospitable man, he was sitting down to his Easter dinner, all his silver platters. As soon as Coleman said a prayer um, a few miles to the south, all the plates lifted up from the king's uh, table and flew out across the the, the mountain to Coleman in front to him and his servant. The first uh, recorded instance of fast food in Ireland, I always say. And of course the king was fascinated to see what happened here. So he got his soldiers and he chased over the mountain uh, to find where his place went. And um, as as the place landed and and the angry king approached Coleman was afraid, so he said another prayer. And as soon as he said the second prayer, the kings, uh, horses, and men uh, became petrified. The feet got frozen on the rock uh, on a place, what we call today, Bohornamish. It's a big slab of pavement right beside the oratory, close to the oratory, where you can see all these horseshoe shapes in the rock. Some of them are old fossils, some of them are solution features, but that's where the people believed the king's horses got stuck in the rock. But The king was stuck there and Coleman and his servant had their feast. The servant ate so much, apparently he died from (laughs) too much food, like a young kid at the end of of, of Lent. And Coleman had his uh, feast and gave thanks to the Lord, at which point the spell was broken and the king came across. And the king came across and he was, uh, rather than being angry, he was saying, Mm. you're a man of great faith, you perform miracles. Come with me and I'll give you um, a site for a monastery. So apparently, Another story goes that um, Coleman was, was um, told to walk as far east until his girdle fell off, his belt fell off. And on that site, um, uh, he was given land for monastery. And today, uh, that place is called Kilmacdua, and it's got the biggest round tower in Ireland. It's mm-hmm. a phenomenal place. It's absolutely beautiful place as well, just on the Galway border. And that's, that's the, the, the end of the, the walk. Just go down to the holy well, sit there and think about Coleman. Yeah. Just as a sort of a, a vague aside, once we had a group of of of, um, of, of uh, school kids up there from Kinvara, which is only a few miles away, and they're all in second class. My son was with them, so he, he was a willing victim. But we told them all about the story of the, the born Namish the and the miracle of the flying plates. And then we said to them all, just close your eyes and you know think about some loved ones maybe who have gone ahead. They'd they lost a little classmate at the time, which is quite sad. But they all said a little prayer, innocent has." and then that was fine and I said go on up now and have a look at the cave and that morning my wife Anne had had come up with a big load of um, juices and potato crisps and she put them in the back of the cave with a little candle and I swear to God the first child came out of the cave his eyes were like saucers he couldn't believe it he says there's there's all this food in here what's happened Jesus I said you must have done well in the prayers it's a miracle half of them believed me (laughs) half of them didn't and the whole discussion on the way back was, how did he put him in there? Mm. You put him in there. I didn't, I was with you all day. I couldn't have done that. So, but it's, a, it's that kind of, it's a place of pure magic. So you're promising if people do this walk, there will be food there in the There may be food. there may just be food. It depends on your faith. If, yeah. you're, <laughs> if you're holy enough <laughs> uh, and if you pray hard enough, it just could happen for you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Great. So have you taken a look at the exhibition in the gallery?
1: Yeah, I had a good look at it yesterday and it's, it's, it's uh, I'm more art critic, but it's, it's quite, um, it's interesting, some beautiful pieces in it, some interesting pieces in it and thought-provoking pieces. And as we, had it, uh, as we discussed at the, the session yesterday, um, it does um, prompt you to think about the future of the landscape. Mm. We see the beautifully presented and slightly romanticised image of the landscape going back maybe a couple of hundred years. Um, some beautiful Paul Henry paintings, for instance, of Connemara. The little houses with the lovely, uh, built from native materials. It's kind of idyllic, but maybe romanticised, because those are times of great hardship and suffering, I'm sure, for people who had very little to live on. Then it contrasted with some of today's more modern uh, images, using video and using um, photography, of the more contemporary life in Ireland, uh, with our nice modern houses and our nice uh, landscape gardens. Not as interesting or as romantic, but factual. And I suppose yes. representative of the fact that we're all better off today, thank God. But I do think today that, you know, the, 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 the image is captured to some degree. I think there's a beautiful image of a tillage field to capture the fact that the landscape to me has become a lot more simplified um, in, in, in modern Ireland. I think it was a more complex landscape before. Um, people depended on a great deal nothing was wasted everything was used for building or for food or for fuel today i think it's become a bigger more obvious landscape we have because of nobody's fault this is modern technology this is modern economies farmers are paid to produce food yeah. and they'll produce it using the best modern technology bigger machines so we have uh better seed crops like we have one species of grass now which is dominant Whereas before, we would have had different meadows, species-rich grasslands. So it's mm. understandable that farmers want a more productive type of grasslands, perhaps, but we lose a lot of the complexity. We lose a lot of, sometimes, of small field systems. Um, so we have a lot of monocultures. Um, we have either of conifer plantations, perhaps, or of tillage fields, or of grasslands. That's progress in some eyes, but we must reflect that we do pay a price to some degree for that as well, yeah. the complexity and diversity. And we see that in declining biodiversity. We see that um, in declining rural communities, uh, because farming in some of these marginal areas, they can't quite farm in a very modern way, some of these more remote areas, like in the burn, So some of that land is being semi-abandoned now or under undergrazed. So you've got these trends of intensification and of, uh, not abandonment, but... Um, Extensification as well. So there's lots happening, and I think the the, the exhibition captured um, yeah. captured some of that and really provoked me and at least to thinking of where do we go from here.
0: Mm. Do you think um, art can change the landscape?
1: I think art can. I think art can. For me, uh, what art, the role art can play here is help us to imagine what type of landscape that we want i think we don't have any vision for our landscape we've i think we have a landscape act now but there's no action behind that act but what what kind of ireland do we want Um, what kind of a landscape do we want Uh, to me our greatest asset is both our people and our landscape and heritage Uh, i think it's phenomenal i think we're here in the age of europe there's so much energy and creativity and there's so much inspiration in the landscape Uh, but we do tend to take it for granted And I think we need to maybe stop and through mediums like art, maybe explore how collectively we want this um, landscape to serve us in the future and for us to serve it accordingly. So I think that's where I'd like to see art playing a role. Um, I do think we need more of a plan for how we produce our food, how we manage our wildlife, how we manage for climate and all these different things. Because we've got a lot of little piecemeal things going on at the moment. Now we have a great story in the Baron*, which I think is inspirational. I do think that uh, even i singing my own praises, I'm not. I just think it shows what can be done. If we have a bit of vision and a bit of energy and appropriate supports. But I do think For our uh, wonderful, beautiful landscape, Uh, we need to maybe think and project what we want from it in the future.
0: At this point, I asked my producer, Jenny, if she had any questions for Brendan. She didn't have a microphone on her, so I'm just going to repeat her question here. She mentioned um, Elle McSweeney's piece, which is part of the exhibition uh, that's currently on in the National Gallery, Shaping Ireland. Elle McSweeney's piece is called The Colour of Ireland, and in it, she suggests that the Burren... In springtime is what Ireland
1: might look like if it was untouched. And Jenny asked if Brandon agreed. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, I think um, I, th- I would agree with that. I think what you said is reflective of the fact that um, a lot of what we, what we perceive to be beautiful, I think a lot of people think if it's green, it's lovely. But I guess in all honesty, a lot of those green fields we see today, are um, monocultures of grassland, And I'm not criticising anybody. It makes sense if you're a farmer to do that. And possibly the shades of green reflect different types of fertiliser being applied to some degree. But in the barn, we do have some parts, and we do have very intensively land as well in the barn, but we do have some, some unimproved pastures, mm-hmm. which are, you know, not quite green, but more grey-green or more a little off colour, a little bit different, um, visibly different. You can, you, can really, you can really see it if you've got, a, if you've got the eye. Um, and they're much more biodiverse and much more interesting, but not as productive. Mm. So, for a farmer, mm. if you can, uh, um, and you're usually advised to do this, you try and improve those grasslands or something like that. Mm. But yeah, if there's certain parts there are not just the burn where you can see fragments of of how biodiverse I suppose and, and um, interesting. Some of our grasslands could be mm. if managed differently.
0: Yeah. Is there anywhere else in the world that uh, is is the same as the burn uh, geologically, ecologically, or is it a unique place?
1: So it is kind of unique, I guess. Yeah. So there's places which, like the Iron Islands, obviously is a kind of like a geographical extension of the burn. We have a lot of similar attributes. You'll find karsts. In other parts of Ireland, like up around Cavan, um, there's some karst. You'll find karst, which is that water worn limestone. Okay. Um, you'll find it in Slovenia, but in the barn we have glaciated karst, so it's a combination of glaciers and water solution, which is quite different. So there are places similar, but they're slightly different. Our flora is interesting. The combination of species, I think, is quite unique, but we don't have a huge biodiversity in Ireland. We're an island, lot, not a lot of plants made it here, so compared to other parts, as in Slovenia, for instance, whereas a few weeks ago you have maybe 70 or 80 plants per square meter rather than 30 or 40. Um, but culturally, I think that's what's really interesting about it. I think it, it just shows you, I keep saying it's like a book written in stone, it shows you the interaction between people and place over 6,000 years. We have a very intact archaeological record because of the abundance of limestone and uh, long inhabitation of the landscape by farmers. So they've all left, every generation has left a legacy in stone. I think that's what's really special about the barn because we've lost that elsewhere, Um, you know, because stuff is built in with earth and um, timber or because of land reclamation or whatever. But in the barn you've got this fantastic cultural record which I think is the outstandingly unique feature that we have there. Uh
0: Well, that was an amazing walk. Um, thanks very much, Brendan. Pleasure. This podcast was engineered and presented by me, Mark Canton and produced by Jenny Taylor and Brina Casey.